Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Inflation infatuation. U.S. consumer prices jumped in July, but there are signs of moderation. Messi, merci. PSG's new striker says he wants to win the Champions League. And DeFi defiled. $600 million of digital assets stolen from a key crypto network. Don't panic, I'll explain or try. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome to First Move once again. Great to be with you as always. And another day of messy mania in the sports world. It's PSG OMG. The star footballer giving Parisian fans glee. Plus the US infrastructure deal RSVP. Senate approved. Now it's on to the House. And more market highs ASAP. Yes, US stocks are at records and they're pushing higher after today's inflation data. Let me give you the details. The US reporting a 5.4% year over year consumer price jump last month. That's a half a percent month over month rise. It's as expected. And it, of course, it is way above the Federal Reserve target. But there are bright spots. Core inflation, which strips out the volatile food and energy prices, rose less than expected. And used car prices also softened as well. So this is good signs. And here's a look at the pre-market action. Futures turning higher after that data. We're watching airline stocks, though, too, today after a warning from U.S. carrier Southwest that bookings are slowing as the Delta variant spreads. Building-related stocks gained Tuesday, too, after the infrastructure vote and remain in focus. As I mentioned already, the U.S. Senate earlier this morning also passing a separate $3.5 trillion spending plan that faces another tough legislative slog. The bottom line remains Congress wants to keep the fiscal firehose flowing and the White House wants the oil spigots turned on, too. Oil falling as the White House pushes OPEC Plus to boost production to ease rising fuel prices that are also flowing into inflation numbers. Another wild Wednesday. Let's get right to our drivers and July's pricing punch. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, great to have your analysis on this. So we did see another significant jump. It is way above the Federal Reserve's targets, but bright spots within it. I also mentioned used cars, huge the sort of drop that we've seen, the relative drop in growth in prices that we saw there. Yeah, I mean, that's a real change, the the used car prices, because we had seen big double-digit gains in those prices and now some moderation there. I think there are two ways to look at this. Um, these numbers. One, if you're a consumer, this confirms everything you know. Every, anybody who's bought anything over the past month knows that these prices have been going up. If you're an investor, though, you're looking at these signs of moderation and you like what you see. You like the core rate of 0.3%, a little cooler than what we saw uh, last time around, and you like some of those places places where you're seeing some moderation. Still, though, the, the overall headline number, five-tenths of a percent increase month over month, 5.4% year over year. Those are, those, are, those are numbers that signal to you that prices have been rising pretty aggressively here as the economy roars and there are these mismatches between supply and demand. So for consumers, this confirms everything they already know. For investors, I think they're focusing in on some of those signs that maybe the worst is behind us in terms of price increases. Yeah, the Institute of International Finance noted um, last week that the U.S. price markups that we're seeing far 
surpass anything like what we're seeing anywhere else in the world. And we can point to the bottlenecks that we've seen, but I think we can also point to the money that people have in their pockets and they're absorbing these costs and businesses are able to pass them on, which we've heard in earnings season as well. So it's a question of when that moderates, whether or not the price uh, wage rises that people are seeing are even compensating them to some degree for the prices that are playing. Because at some point, you have to assume that some of this unravels. Um, But we're going to talk about something else. What's going on in the United States? They've passed an infrastructure deal in the Senate. Then we have this three and a half trillion dollar amount that also got sign off in the Senate. The House, though, is the crunch. Can we talk about this and how likely more spending actually is to see ultimately a coming to the economy? And I heard the side. Yeah, it's it's certainly it's certainly a good day for the Biden agenda. And it's certainly a good day for, you know, the proof that that Biden's bipartisanship and his years and years in the Senate were able to push both of these measures this far. There's still a lot of work to do. And I think it's going to turn out to be a frenetic fall as they try to figure out how to how to move this all forward. That infrastructure bill, we talked about it yesterday. Um, That, as I've always said, is just a pure intelligence test for Congress upgrading and updating America's, the guts that run America is a good idea. And that will be good for the productivity of this country. Uh, Maybe not a big spending push right away because not everything is shovel ready, of course. It's spread out over time. But that is something that is a net positive for the American economy. The three and a half trillion dollar budget resolution that is moving forward, the past in the Senate, that is a whole pile of money that maybe moderates will want to see trimmed a little bit. So there could be uh, problems or, or at least some restraint from the Democrats on that big bill. And also on that infrastructure bill that passed the Senate, what will happen in the House? Uh, will there be other demands from progressives, for example, who'd like to see other measures? So there, there is still political work to be done, but even getting both of these balls to this, <laughs> to this line on the field uh, is something that a lot of people didn't think they'd see happen. Yeah, it feels like a win. The Senate, at least, has passed the uh, infrastructure intelligence test. The question is, can they and can they isolate this and recognize the need for this rather than trying to wrap it up in something else? Else, uh, yes, on to you with that intelligence test to the House, perhaps the House <laughs> leadership too. Yes, uh-huh. your turn. Your turn, yes. House of Representatives. A ball in your court, Christine Ramos. Thank you so much. Speaking of balls, football's biggest star hoping to shine bright in the City of Lights, Leo Messi, says he wants to win the one trophy that has so far eluded his new club, PSG. He spoke to our Amanda Davies. I'm aware of my background and the objective this club has, fighting for a while to win a Champions League, and it came close these last few years. For me, on a personal level, I would love to win another Champions League, like I've said in previous years. And I think I've come to the ideal place that's ready for that. Meanwhile, the PSG president seen here with Messi is defending the transfer, saying the club has always followed UEFA's financial fair play regulations. CNN senior producer Saskia van Dorn is in Paris for us. That's a very interesting one, actually, Saskia, that there are a lot of people looking at this and saying, hang on a second, if Barca couldn't afford him, how can PSG, who are also in pretty financial exciting conditions as well, given what we've seen in the past year. But let's talk about the reception, the celebrations, the joy and what we heard from him today. Emotional leaving Barca, but Game on now with PSG and the Champions League certainly in focus. Exactly, Julia. And I mean, Messi said everything that the fans wanted to hear today during the press conference. He said that he had the same goals as Paris, that he was going to do his best to win those titles. And crucially, he believed that... 
PSG can now win the Champions League. Of course, Messi has won the Champions League four times before. He's a six-time Ballon d'Or winner. So the fans really believe that with Messi, they finally have a chance. And let's talk about those fans. Uh, Julio, you and I were talking yesterday when he arrived in Le Bourget. Uh, and the fans were back here again today because they were waiting for that press conference. In fact, a lot of them were even lined up in front of the PSG store. Let's talk about the commercial success um, of Messi. They were outside that PSG store to get uh, his number 30 shirt. It was a huge line. And then we came here, uh, Messi went inside, gave that press conference. During the press conference, the fans out here once again just utter joy. They let off flares, the colours blue, red and white for the French uh, flag. They let off fireworks again. Um, you know, I spoke to a, a neighbour here who said that she had never seen anything like it since she'd lived in the neighbourhood. So really very similar scenes to what we saw yesterday, Julia. Yeah, I'm just noticing the lack of masks as well and getting completely distracted. Um, Saskia, what does this do and what does his presence do for the brand of PSG? Because whether it's the commercial opportunities, just the fact that they've got such a well-known, such a brilliant footballer now on board, what does it mean for brand PSG? Well, exactly. It means so much for the global brand. And, you know, we just said, Julia, that... Uh, PSG was one of the only clubs that could really afford uh, Messi and this is just going to do wonders for them because it's now not just Messi on the team you've got Neymar, you've got Mbappe those are three huge megastars uh, so you know again we spoke about this yesterday Julia but it's going to be quite difficult for the, uh, for the manager and the coach to be able to, to manage perhaps these three egos uh, but for the global brand it's going, to be, it's going to mean so much and as I said Julia we really saw it this morning just in terms of that line in front of the store it's snaked all around down the Champs-Élysées all these people waiting to get their hands on that number 30 shirt Julia yeah absolutely and it was quite nice to see as well in that press conference the fact that he said Neymar his former colleague of course the Brazilian footballer played an important decision in his um, his choice to come to PSG so it's going to be quite fascinating to see those guys in action once again Saskia great to have you with us thank you and enjoy the celebrations I'm sure the atmosphere there is um, pretty electric Saskia Van Doorn there Okay, let's move on. A crypto hack of epic proportions. More than $600 million worth of cryptocurrency has reportedly been stolen from Poly Network, a decentralized finance platform that connects different blockchains. They confirmed the hack. Claire Sebastian is following the story for us. Oh, this is an exciting one to unravel, um, Claire. And of course, Poly Network confirmed the hack because they were open about it and said, hey, please give us the money back. You've taken it from people in the community that basically can't afford to lose this. Who are Poly Network? What do we do? What do they do? And what do we know about how this money was taken or this digital asset cash was taken? Yeah, so Poly Network, as you said, they are a sort of platform that promotes the interoperability of different blockchains. We know there are different blockchains out there, the likes of Binance Chain, Ethereum. They allow them to sort of work together for, for contracts and, and transactions to be executed uh, across different blockchains. So that's their, their mission. That's their philosophy. Uh, and in terms of the hack, well, they disclosed it. As you said, they tweeted out uh, an open letter. We live in a world, Julia, where uh, the Dear Hacker letters are now being published on the Internet. So they published this letter uh, yesterday around lunchtime and the letter said we want to establish communication with you and urge you to return the hacked assets and appeal as you noted to, to, to some sort of perhaps affinity with the crypto community they said the money you stole is from tens of thousands of crypto community members hence the people so that's sort of the first we heard about the attack then then analysts start to move in and, and try to determine how it happened a company called slow mist which is a, a sort of crypto intelligence company they said that 
More than $610 million were transferred to, to, to three different addresses. They say they think there was a, a vulnerability within these smart contracts uh, that, w- that was exploited and that, that allowed the hacker to reroute these funds to, to their own addresses. It's unclear yet exactly what happened. There's different speculation about this online, but $610 million uh, worth, of, worth of different kinds of crypto coin, an enormous, enormous sum. Uh, so that's really where we are now. But in terms of of, of the return that, that Pony Network has asked for, we are now starting to see, this is really interesting, some of the funds being returned. As of about an hour and 20 minutes ago, almost 4.8 million in various different coins has been returned. That's obviously a very tiny fraction of the overall amount, but still begs the question as to who might be behind this, whether it could be you know a white hat hacker perhaps trying to make a point, maybe even an inside job. We just don't know at this stage, Julia. Yeah, and I think one of the big questions that I was asked when this news broke was, so does this mean the blockchain itself, which records all the data, has been hacked? And no one's suggesting that's the case. So I think this is a very important aspect of this. And when we're talking about, we've touched on it on this show, decentralized finance, we're talking about what people hope is going to be, um, and you mentioned smart contracts too, a more efficient, quicker way of getting insurance or loans out there. But this is the last thing the industry needs. And what we have seen Uh, according to those who are tracking this data, an explosion of fraud, theft, crime in in this part of the crypto sector in particular, and particularly relative to the broader sector itself. Yeah, and perhaps it's it's not good news for for DeFi as we're seeing decentralized finance, as you know, as we're seeing a surge in popularity of this kind, these kinds of applications, you know, lending platforms, exchanges that happen on the blockchain, they are being hacked uh, in in a sort of increasing amount. The the, the crypto intelligence company CypherTrace put out a report. They said that uh, that DeFi hacks are up by almost three times this year in terms of the losses compared to last year. Meanwhile, in the crypto space in general, including decentralized finance, that's actually decreased this year by by almost two thirds compared to last year, and by much more compared to 2019. So you're seeing a, a sort of an exponential decrease in terms of overall hacks of the crypto sector, perhaps as that area. Matures so that so perhaps DeFi can take heart from that. That as it matures and, and and sort of deals with some of these vulnerabilities, it might also see a decrease. But for right now, this is a new sector uh, and it is seeing an increase in these attacks. And one really interesting point, given that we're now asking who might be behind this poly network attack, is that CypherTrace points out that one quarter uh, of the attacks on decentralized finance so far this year came from what they call rug pulls. So essentially, inside jobs, Julia. Hmm. Fascinating details here and um, only $595 million to come back. Wowzers. Claire Sebastian, (laughs) thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Now to those devastating wildfires in Greece persisting for more than a week. The country's prime minister says Greece is facing a, quote, natural disaster of unprecedented proportions as nearly 600 fires ravaged the country, forcing thousands to flee and destroying homes and livelihoods. All as the nation boils under one of its worst heat waves in decades. CNN's Eleni Jokos is live on the island of Evia, which has been particularly hard hit. And you remain there. Talk to us about where specifically you are, Eleni, today and, and what you're seeing. I'm still in northern Evia, and this is still a region that is defined as an active front in Greece. Now, you and I spoke yesterday where we were with firefighters uh, trying to put out uh, extraordinary uh, flames and fires that were ravaging parts of the forest and the whole point was to try and stop its spread 
Today we're seeing a big concern about the rekindling of fires and I just want to show you here you can see that it's still burning. This was put out many days ago on this uh, specific side of the island but again you're seeing smoke and it's a little bit like you've got a bit of a breeze today Julia so that's the big risk that you're seeing a rekindling and if I just show you the extent of the devastation this by the way is just a small portion of the island um, where you can see the far, as far as the eye can see you've got forest that has been absolutely destroyed and decimated. We're talking about hundreds and thousands of hectares of virgin forest that is gone. We're talking about agricultural land that has been destroyed. Now, the Prime Minister announced an almost $600 million uh, relief package for Evia and Athens. Those are the two regions of uh, Greece that have been uh, most impacted by the wildfires. And importantly, he also spoke about remuneration for the victims, for households, for businesses and for farmers. Now, if you speak to locals here, the damage can't be quantified because the forest is going to take decades to be restored. And then you're also talking about livelihoods that were built over many years. So that is the big concern. We're also waiting for a press conference from the Prime Minister, that is set to occur tomorrow. Many people have questions. Remember, he apologized for the weaknesses in the response. There's still anger and emotions are high, Julia. I can't tell you just the, the, the despair and the sadness and the trauma and the shock that comes with this experience. People tell us that they've never seen anything like this before. It is unprecedented and they're scared about the future. Yeah, money alone can't compensate for this kind of loss. Eleni Jokos, thank you for that report. Okay, Taliban fighters in Afghanistan appear to have captured a ninth provincial capital this week. A local official says the city of Fazabad was the latest to fall after government forces retreated. The Taliban have now seized most of the north and are trying to take the region's biggest city. So to come here on First Move, a grocery bolt-on. The Estonian Mobility Group adds a new twist and a bid to deliver a super app variety. We speak to the CEO and taxing for takeoff. The electric air taxi startup that's making its Wall Street debut in 15 minutes from now. We speak to Joby Aviation's chairman coming up on the show. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. We've brought you merry merriment in France. What about the stock picture in the United States? Well, I can tell you that's far from messy. U.S. futures pushing higher after an encouraging read on U.S. inflation. A red card, though, overall. Prices rising 5.4% year over year. But early signs of some core inflation moderation and hopes that the recent spike in items like used car prices is truly transitory, as the Federal Reserve repeatedly insists. Airlines on the descent, however, Southwest warning it may not be profitable this quarter due to fewer bookings and increased cancellations. JP Morgan says spending on air travel fell almost 20 percent from its recent peak late last month due to COVID concerns. Lisa Shallett joins us. She is the Chief Investment Officer at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Lisa, great to have you on the show. Much to discuss this morning. Let's hone in on the inflation data. Investors seemingly taking heart from that read and some of the signs within it that we are seeing moderation. What's your take? Uh, look, clearly the arithmetic suggests a little bit of deceleration in some of the items uh, that are certainly related to supply chain constraints like 
the dynamics in used cars, which is, you know, filtered through from the semiconductor shortages, uh, which affects, uh, you know, new manufactured vehicles. Uh, but, you know, our read is, you know, let's focus on the headlines. Let's focus on the reality of the matter. And the reality of the matter, uh, to your point, is headline uh, inflation is still running at 5.4%, about the same as last month. Uh, while the core is cooled uh, ever so slightly, we're still talking about a number of 4.3%, which is meaningfully in excess of the 2% uh, target that the Fed has set. And so, um, you know, we're really now starting to get into the zip code, in our humble opinion, where the Fed is going to be tested about around their framework of what it means uh, aver what average inflation targeting really means uh, and what are the time frames over which um, they're going to care about this. Um, their preferred measure, it, as we know, is, is the personal consumption expenditure index, the PCE. Uh, you know, that tends to run uh, a little bit below the CPI because it has a different mix of things uh, like rents and wages. Uh, but even that is going to probably, you know, show a number of, of 3.6% uh, year over year uh, in the core. So uh, our view is that this debate uh, around the urgency of what the Fed is going to do, the timing of the taper, uh, and the resilience of their framework and the credibility of their framework um, really is going to continue to be tested by these numbers. It's so fascinating, isn't it? Investors are clutching at the signs that this is going to moderate and therefore the Federal Reserve won't have to move. They also hone in on signs of perhaps slowing growth, the concerns about Delta. You're less worried about that, too. And when you look at the overall headlines for, for U.S. growth, particularly relative to the rest of the world, growth is strong. I mean, the Federal Reserve is looking at high inflation. It's also looking at solid growth. Let's be clear. Yes, let's be clear. You know, one of the, the things that uh, I think a lot of folks have uh, lost touch with, including, you know, some of the folks in Congress who are, you know, um, you know, debating our, our current infrastructure bills. This is a an economy that grew last quarter at 6% real uh, with those inflation numbers that we just talked about. It means a nominal growth in the economy of double digits. Uh, you know, those are not levels we've seen since the early 1950s. Uh, and it looks like the third quarter could be another, you know, 6% real GDP quarter uh, with deceleration only to about 4% real uh, uh, in 2022. And we just need to remind people that's two times uh, the rate of real growth uh, that the U.S. economy experienced during the last and quote unquote longest uh, expansion, that 12 year, you know, post great financial uh, crisis expansion where markets did spectacularly well, but the economy really, you know, kind of plotted along. And we're, we're, we're at a place where it looks like we're going to do uh, quite a bit better than that for a period of time. So I can give you a whole list of reasons why you might want to be defensive if you're an investor here, whether it's concerns about the spreading of Delta, the, the message that the bond market perhaps is sending with with interest rates coming down, um, some of those fears of growth. But you've you've sort of debunked them quite successfully, I think, there, quite frankly. Perhaps the Fed does decide to act and that it needs to cool things down a little bit. There are reasons to be defensive if you believe they're coming, at least in the short term. Firstly, Lisa, what do you think? And if the choice here for investors is to go into something like tech stocks for defensive purposes, is that really a good idea, too? 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, Julia, I know you follow our work and, and you know that our concerns have been uh, that increasingly, you know, the markets and the indexes, which are heavily weighted to some of these, you know, mega cap tech names um, are quite vulnerable. And they're vulnerable not only because valuations are quite extended, but earnings expectations for next year are quite extended uh, and the dependency of those valuations on extremely and in many cases historically low interest rates has just continued to rise. And so when we sit a little bit more soberly and look forward at 2022, uh, we see not only rising rates, you know, rates on the 10-year potentially getting into the 1.6 to 1.8, even 2% uh, range, but we see more regulation on these tax stocks and, quite frankly, higher taxes. Uh, and none of that is is factored in. And that those three things, in our humble opinion, could be kind of the triple whammy uh, for some of those perceived safe stocks. Uh, and instead, you know, we would recommend if folks want to be defensive, maybe try those tried and true things like, you know, staples and utilities again. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me, quite frankly. And um, Lisa, you're completely right. I do follow your work very closely and I may be guilty of leading the witness there, but <laughs> that's sometimes how it works. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your wisdom today. Lisa Shallot, the Chief Investment Officer at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And U.S. stock markets are up and running after another summer inflation scorcher. U.S. prices rising 5.4% last month. But there are some hopes that recent inflation data points may be transitory. And that's pushing the Dow and the S&P to new record highs. The weight of the world, though, on parent company of Weight Watchers, shares of WW International shedding about a quarter of its weight after a 40 percent second quarter profit drop and a soft outlook as subscription growth slows. Energy in focus, too. The White House urging OPEC Plus to boost production, calling its gradual approach to raising output, quote, simply not enough. Fuel prices have risen by almost 90 percent a gallon over the past year. Okay, now to a startup taking on Uber with explosive growth. Estonia's Bolt is expanding at breakneck speed, now with over 75 million customers worldwide and a valuation nearing $5 billion. The backbone of the business is micro-mobility with ride-hailing and scooters. Then it took a slice out of the food delivery market. Now Bolt is promising to deliver groceries to your door in 15 minutes. Marcus Villig is the CEO and founder of Bolt, and he joins us now. Marcus, fantastic to have you on the show. You know, I've just been looking at some of your growth stats just between the beginning of 2020 and today. If someone would have told you when the pandemic hit back in 2020 that you would double the number of cities to 300 that you were operating in, you'd go from 35 countries to 45 countries and you'd go from 30 million passengers to 75 million customers over that time. What would you have said? Uh, That's something we were definitely hoping for, but uh, absolutely it was impossible to predict what, what's going to happen. So we prepared for the worst. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Talk to me about how you're achieving this growth. Fundamentally, it, it comes down to what's Bolt's mission as a company. And what we want to build is an alternative to the private car. And we see that especially in Europe and Africa, it's, it's a far better opportunity to do that than in the US because cities are generally denser, car ownership is lower. And, and I think we can actually build a truly viable future here where people can use on-demand transportation when they actually need it. 
to that might be micromobility with electric scooters or electric bikes. That might be ride hailing. That might be delivery products. And so instead of people going to the store, they can get what sets us apart from every competitor out there is that we're far more frugal and operationally uh, efficient at what we do. And we need to recognize that transportation and food are some of the largest consumer spending categories in the world. So price really matters. So this is not the traditional space where you can only focus on the software side of it, but you actually need real physical operations on the ground as we have in 45 countries. Um, and we do that better than anyone. Wow. OK, there's so much in there. Let's hone in on grocery delivery to start and then we'll work backwards to um, the ride hailing because I agree with everything you said about the opportunities in terms of grocery delivery, but specifically in Europe, why the choice to go to Europe when, I mean, I was listing them, Getty, Gorillas, Wheezy, Flink, Zap. There are so many competitors that all believe that they can have an edge in this market. Can you do it and can you make money, Marcus? So uh, we're very used to competition. Uh, we're now a bit about seven years old as a company. Uh, from day one, we've had competitors in every single product line that we operate in. Uh, and what we see across the board, what makes sense, what uh, gives us an edge over competitors is that we really focus on what consumers care about. And we've never heard a consumer say that they want the prices to be higher, they want the service to be slower, they want the quality to be worse. But we, we know exactly that all of those things are already true today. They will be true in 10 years. Uh, that we need to focus on speed. We need to focus on pricing. Uh, and that's what really has set Paul apart in every category. And so, so that's the first one. That's the DNA of the company, really being operationally excellent. But the second one is that uh, we now operate this ecosystem with five different products. So actually, each of those has a strong synergy with each other. So consumers that already use us, um, and we have 75 million customers across Europe and Africa, they already know the brand. They already have their payment details stored. They, we already know their locations. So it gives us a big edge over any new entrant that's now trying to enter the space. Um, I'll come back to that because that's an interesting point. But first, I was looking at just some of the data in the UK from the lockdown that they had back in in January. And just 16% of the country's grocery spending, I believe, was online. So 1-6%. How big... Do you think as a proportion of the sales that were out there, no matter which country that we're talking about, post-pandemic is actually going to be done online? Because it is more expensive to get a grocery delivery done. And it doesn't feel like you're competing with sales at supermarkets. It feels like you're competing with sales at convenience stores. And it is, let's be clear, far more expensive to get it delivered this way than it is just to take a walk there or drive your car there and, and get the shopping yourself. Well, how we see it is that it's very similar to where e-commerce was about 20 years ago, which is that the penetration was very low, and uh, then it was just compounding for the last 20 years, gradually growing and growing every single year. Uh, and we just see that in, in the grocery space, it's going to take more time. So today, yes, as, 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 as you rightly said, we're starting off from the convenience side. So relatively small basket sizes, focusing on the first 10, 15 minute very quick deliveries. Uh, and then once we have already established the beachhead there and we get economies of scale in terms of the suppliers uh, of being able then to afford um, actually goods in a, in a more affordable way to consumers, then we can see that we can start to move up market and go over against these uh, larger baskets and actually start to compete with supermarkets as well. But that's going to be a five, 10 year journey for, for us and these other mm. companies going after the space. Do you think there'll be consolidation in the grocery delivery space with so many players trying to I tackle this? Absolutely. Similar to the on-demand mobility space, uh, we've seen this wave now happen four or five times, which is that you start off uh, with a new industry. There's millions of, of investor funding pouring in, thousands of competitors. And then usually after five, six years, the space starts to mature and consolidate. 
and we think we are just seeing this same cycle now repeat all over again in the on-demand grocery space. I'm sure you'd be the first person to argue that your business model is very different from Uber's, but do you think you can be bigger than Uber one day? We absolutely already are in, in many countries. So uh, our focus is on Europe and Africa. Uh, we're the, already the largest European player and in about half the countries uh, that we operate in, uh, we're already the market leader in the right-hailing side, on the scooter side, and now soon on the food delivery front as well. Phenomenal. And in those markets, are you profitable? In the mature markets where we have uh, the leading position, it's, it's absolutely a sustainable business model. Um, I, I can't say that for every other player, but again, false entire focus from day one has been frugality. How do we operate this in not only a great way on the technology side, but also operationally? How do we keep costs low? And, and I think that's something that really sets us apart. We can operate with far less external funding than any other player out there. Wow. So you're saying, and let's talk specifically very quickly about ride hailing in isolation. You are making this business model work because when we look at competitors like Lyft, for example, we've just mentioned Uber, they're struggling to make money. They're still struggling to make money. You're saying you can be profitable with the way that you're handling this. Absolutely. Wow. So, Marcus, fast uh, forward. And oh, oh, have you frozen? Mentally, it's simple. Oh. Marcus, Sorry? we lost uh, you there very briefly. Can we hear you? I think we can hear you again. Marcus, uh, fast forward two to three years. Where is Bolt? Our goal is that the, for, for the medium term, we want to become the largest European technology company. And we, we see that the transportation and the food space uh, are some of the largest categories or, or industries out there. So by being the European leader in these, we can also be a hugely transformative company for the whole European technology ecosystem. Um, and I think one of the second order effects from that is that talent can actually uh, stay in Europe, grow in Europe, and, and doesn't need to always relocate to the US or China to actually make a big impact on the world. Very quickly, Marcus, because I have to let you go. You started this company at 19, and it wasn't that long ago. How does it feel having a conversation like this about something that you've grown and is now all over the world? More Silence. Than ever. Um, oh. I just recall going on the streets of Tallinn uh, and, and uh, signing up taxi drivers one by one just eight years ago. And uh, now we have a team of uh, two and a half thousand people um, and we're just getting started launching new products every year. <laughs> I'm glad we got that in. I was dying to ask that from the beginning of the interview. Next time I'll know to ask it first. Marcus, great to chat to you. Stay in touch, please, and we'll, uh, we'll track your progress. You. Marcus Villick, CEO and founder of Bolt. All right, up next, shares in electric air taxi startup Joby Aviation trading for the first time this morning. We've got the executive chairman next. Welcome back to First Move and on to a Wall Street debut in more ways than one. Shares in electric air taxi startup Joby Aviation begin trading on the New York Stock Exchange today. And as you can see, great excitement there ringing the bell. And meanwhile, outside the NYSE, as you can see here too, the aircraft itself is on display for the first time ever. It's powered by six electric motors. It takes off and lands vertically. Joby's working on getting FAA certification for the craft and hopes to offer ride-hailing air taxi services by 2024. Joining us now is Executive Chairman of Joby Aviation, Paul Chiara. Paul, fantastic to have you on the show. Very quickly, how does this day feel? Well, Julia, thanks so much for having us today. Obviously, part of this is really exciting for the broader team. We've been working on this aircraft for the greater part of a decade, and 
even just in the past six months, we've had an opportunity to prove things that people didn't think was possible. A fully electric aircraft that's able to travel 150 miles on a single charge, and also is almost 100 times quieter as a helicopter. So we really think about today as an opportunity to celebrate that achievement. At the same time, it's also a real transition for the company, as we're shifting gears from the company that's been focused on product development to now one that needs to be squarely focused on certification, production, and service. So it's a really exciting day. You also now have to focus on investors too. And I do want to talk about the technology because I'm incredibly excited too. But I want to talk about the decision to go public today and and how you've done it. There's been some real reticence about these SPAC vehicles, special purpose acquisition um, vehicles that are used to go public. Talk to me, Paul, about what this means for longer term investors, because I think one of the fears here is that going public this way is a way to get the early investors out and get new investors in. And sometimes that can be quite expensive or at least volatile. What's the message to new investors in particular today? Yeah, so we had an opportunity to actually structure this transaction in a really novel way, Mm -hmm. one that aligned the alignment of existing investors, new investors and the management team for the long term. So our transaction is really different from others. There's as long as a five-year lockup for existing investors, management, and the SPAC sponsor. And that, I think, differentiates the structure that we've taken versus some of the others in the market. At the end of the day, we think about this as an opportunity. You know, this was not so much a question for us about sort of market timing, but really because we were ready. The technology was ready. The certification path was ready. And this gave us an opportunity to put the capital and the resources in the bank to execute up for the next three to four years. Yeah, I think it's very important for people to understand the difference in how you structured this. So thank you for um, for answering that question. All right. So you said it. Look, we want to get people up there flying, perhaps air taxis, even as early as as 2024. There are a lot of people working on this, Paul. There's Boeing, uh, Airbus. We've spoken to Volocopter as well. What differentiates you? And I guess you can tie that to, I know, the conversations you've been having with the regulators for, what, the last three years? Yeah, so I think there's really two ways to think about the different approaches that are out there. And I think the first is to think about what sort of specifications the vehicle can deliver. We tried to build one aircraft that could deliver any trips between 5 and 150 miles. So that's not just trips inside of cities, but that's connecting cities to nearby cities, and to some cases cities to suburbs as well. And that combination of trips I think makes our vehicle a little bit unique. I think the second thing that's worth noting is sort of where we are in the development of the technology and the path through certification. Joby has been at this for a long time. We've had more than a thousand test flights on full-scale aircraft, and we've demonstrated even in the last six months that we're able to hit the range and the noise targets that we set out to hit almost 10 years ago. So we feel really good about our positioning on the technology, and we feel like we've got an increasingly clear path through certification, and I think that sets us apart from some of the other companies in the space. What about cost? I mean, can you give us a sense of what the cost of one of these flights is? And even just relative to um, a helicopter, for example, in terms of running costs and initial purchase, because obviously we're talking about something that's electric here too versus, versus fuel and operates very differently. Yeah, you're right. And that's actually one of the principal things that we set out to do. We wanted to make sure that this brand new mode of transportation wasn't something that was just exclusively for the wealthy in the way that helicopters are today. But because we're using a fully electric powertrain, zeroing out the fuel cost, because there's improved maintenance relative to helicopters, we think we can deliver price points that are affordable from day one. So we've talked about $4 per passenger seat mile when we start, essentially the cost of an Uber Black, moving down to almost $3 per passenger seat mile, so the cost of an Uber X in just a few years. At those price points, we think about this mode of transportation as something that people can use every single day. 
you know, again, I go back to the, the idea of the regulators. Do you think actually the bigger challenge here perhaps is not convincing them, it's going to be convincing people, particularly when we're talking about sort of autonomous flying of these things? Is, is perhaps overcoming people's own concerns about what that means perhaps the greater challenge? Yeah, so we definitely thought about this question of kind of what is going to help for customer adoption. Um, and actually, our approach is a little bit different from some others in this front as well. So we're starting with a trained pilot in seat. We're going to be certifying an aircraft, and there's going to be a trained pilot that's sitting in it. And part of that is because there isn't a clear regulatory path for autonomy, but also because we think that's going to give customers peace of mind as they get into a brand new vehicle. And we think that's going to be really important in terms of getting people over the hump for what is something that's going to be a little bit different than um, what they may be used to. What's it like, Paul, inside one of these things? Because clearly I'm sure you've flown it, and I know you've done the test flight. Just what's it like? So we have actually, um, we're still in remote piloted testing for the, for, the, for the product. So we've had a thousand test flights all done on a remote piloted basis. We're going to be transitioning to uh, having test pilots in the vehicle relatively soon. But I can tell you that we've thought a lot about what that experience looks like. And from a passenger standpoint, it's going to feel a lot like sitting in an SUV. There are automotive style doors, seats that are comfortable, and you don't have to wear headphones because the vehicle is so quiet. So for all these reasons, we think we're going to give people touchstones that feel familiar, although of course the aircraft is very different. And how confident are you that come 2024, I'm going to be able to go on the Uber app, because I know there's a partnership there too, and book a flight on one of these things? Fully confident? Yeah, so we hit a really important milestone in our certification effort last year with our receipt from the US FAA of a G1 issue paper. That gives us the roadmap to walk down for certification, the set of tests that we need to do at the component level and then at the vehicle level to prove out the safety. So the challenge ahead is really one of program management, making sure that we march through that checklist and get the work done that we need with the FAA. And I can say we feel good about our confidence level when it comes to reaching that certification date in 2023, rolling out service in 2024. Okay, let's hope that path you fly down as opposed to um, walk down. I'm going to come down to the stock exchange later and, uh, and take a look at it. Paul, congratulations today and thank you for making time for us. Paul Thanks Sharada, so much, Julia. I appreciate Executive it. Executive Chairman of JB Aviation. Thank you, sir. All right, after the break, Star Wars fanatics prepare to be blown away with a new experience you're sure to love. Don't believe me? I find your lack of faith disturbing. Come on, Dad. We gotta go save the ship. No. We're going to save the galaxy. Welcome back to First Move. There are less than two months to go until Dubai opens the doors of Expo 2020. The massive event could also throw open big opportunities for two other nations, Israel and the UAE, that only normalized relations a year ago. For more, here's Nina Dos Santos. It started with a signature. The Abraham Accords have been a boon for business between Israel and the UAE. Now Israeli entrepreneurs like Yariv Cohen hope to see it flourish further at Expo 2020 in Dubai, the first global event in the region since that signature. Dubai Expo for me represents the perfect combination of business, sustainability and policy. Heading up a renewable energy company in Dubai, Cohen is particularly excited about the focus on sustainable technology and the potential opportunities he can seize upon. This is the right place to be because the theme of Expo is sustainability, which is exactly what we do. 
We provide solar system on homes that people that don't have power today. The policymakers in the world will come here. So we're looking for collaboration. It's not just a networking event, it's a lot more bigger than that for us. Wow, very interesting. What a panoramic view of Jerusalem. Once finished, Israel hopes its pavilion, which recreates an old Middle Eastern tent made up with LED panels, will be the home for partnerships, big announcements and deals. So how are you getting ready for, uh, for Expo? Oh, there's a lot to do. It will be a major event. Well, hopefully it will be a successful one outside. In July, business between the countries reached $675 million. And for Israeli ambassador Ita Nye, Expo 2020 in Dubai will be a gateway for more. We want to show Israel. We want to show our culture. We want to show our uh, innovative spirit. Cooperating is the way forward. That's Israel's mantra, literally. Towards tomorrow, El Hamachar. Israel's Chamber of Commerce expects Expo 2020 to boost trade to $1.5 billion, bringing together each country's strengths in several emerging sectors. There is a great synergy, whether it's agriculture, agrotech, food security, cyber, artificial intelligence, everything tech, meditech. That's music to Cohen's ears. If you have a global ambition, use the Expo as a jumping stone Expo 2020 could cement the marriage of two countries, sharing a love of commerce and of tech. Nina Dos Santos, CNN. And finally, on First Move, if you can't afford a ticket on a rocket ship to space, here's an alternative back on Earth. The Galactic Star Cruiser is taking bookings. It's actually a Disney's new luxury Star Wars hotel. And it does come complete with lightsaber experiences and Star Wars characters to interact with. It will open at Disney World in Florida next spring and a two-night stay could cost a family as much as $6,000. May the force be with you and your credit card. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.